and welcome to Prepare Like a Pro live chats. My name is Jack McLean. I created Prepare Like a Pro earlier in the year. We are a strength and conditioning business that specialise in athlete development for football. If you're interested in working with us, head over to our website, preparelikeapro.com, where you can check out our training packages as well as online training programs and face-to-face training. I'm going to invite Ben Darwin to join us. Just sending the invite over, Ben. Here we go. Connecting. One sec, mate. I'll just go through your intro and then we'll get cracking yep. straight into the, uh, the question. So for yep. those that don't know, Ben, he's a retired um, professional player. He represented the ACT Brumbies in Super Rugby and played at international level for the Wallabies. He has a considerable experience uh, in coaching, play development and analysis. This includes a variety of coaching and performance analysis positions with Western Force, Melbourne Rebels and in Japan with the NTT Shining Arcs as well as the Suntory Sun Goliath, driven by a desire to introduce a greater degree of empirical analysis, which is what a fair bit of our talk will be tonight uh, on data analytics and bringing it into professional sport. Ben established Gainline Analytics after more than a decade of involvement in professional sports. So really keen to hear uh, his story and journey from a player through to a coach to their analysis. He had a hands-on founder. He's involved in every level of the business, whether it be developing predictive models, presenting research findings or consulting with clients. So thanks for jumping in, mate, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to this chat. It's a pleasure. Take us back to the beginning, mate. When did you find out that you had a passion for either coaching or, or analysis when it comes to professional team sports? Obviously, it came really off the back of my playing experience. I was actually saying to someone yesterday, sometimes I wish I'd actually coached and then played because coaching yep. gives you such a great sense of, of what you actually require from people. And also, I think... When you start coaching, you realise that most players are just kids, basically, (laughs) in adult bodies. Because of my injury, I I retired at 28, and so I still felt like I had something left in the tank to give. And I really didn't know anything about analysis too much, except I have a sort of inquisitive mind. Mm -hmm. I also didn't know until further down the track that I actually have ADHD. And ADHD sort of is something that I I see as a huge advantage. I think it's great, but it helps you to think in a in a sort of an analytic way and think of think of things in terms of the the big picture. And I'd always wondered about as a player, it didn't make sense to me about why Australia was good at rugby. Just in terms of how many people we had playing the game, and and it was never really known by the by the players, to be honest with you. And then also too is that at different times I had coaches that I didn't think were that great, but they were very successful. So I wanted. Yeah, to yeah, that. yeah. I started doing data analysis itself though in 2008, in when they had the global financial crisis. So I was in Japan, and the team I was working with, I was just a coach, and I thought it'd be great to add another string to my bow, just in case they're going to fire me, or just in case you can have another have another aspect to what you can do. And so I just started teaching it myself. And then I, my my wife and I uh, got engaged, and she was from Melbourne. I went back to Melbourne and 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 met with one of the coaches who was who was going to start out there, and he said, "I heard you can do analysis." And I said, "Oh yeah," bluffing a little bit. And then he said, yeah. uh, "Well, do you?" Come work for us. You're the analyst if you want it. And I'm like, okay. What I didn't know is that also probably be I was going to have to be IT as well. And it was an amazing experience. Actually, I've done it twice, but being part of teams where you're literally three people sitting at a table with a bit of paper and a pen, and, yeah, and that's you start from there. You don't have a name. You don't have a playing list. And to build, be part of building two clubs from that scenario was a really interesting, interesting experience. Actually, yeah. Where do you start? Far out. That is an interesting experience. There's a fair bit to unpack there. That's what, what about with the, the analysis side of things? So you said you had an inquisitive mind. What was performance analyst or data analyst doing in your playing days? Did you connect with someone that was doing the role or was it just self-research that you 
were first exposed to it. Interesting, interestingly, so so the so the video analysis kind of just started to come in. Okay. It just started to go off. I mean, video analysis has always been around, but you would watch a video and then sometimes they chop up clips. But then what really started to change it in rugby was when they could code games. Yep. And then you could then take a whole bunch of footage and then take that, uh, overlay the code on it. And so you could really start to database. So the old mm-hmm. days, if you wanted to look at a team's lineouts, you have to cut up all the lineouts, put them together, map them yourself. Whereas when you could then code over them, you could, or get other people to code them, you could very quickly access massive amounts of video yep. and you could sort that video. So left-hand side, five-man lineouts in the 22. That, well, okay, let's look at that data. And then they could add other pieces of information to that code and then the code got more and more depth to it. What I found, though, with most data analytics is, and, and this is interesting for me with teams of all types, is that most it didn't really represent my experiences as a player. Mm. That it's, it's, it gives data to tell you the outcome, but it never really told you, for example, why certain teams were good or certain teams were bad. I find data analysis oftentimes a description of what's going on, of the way a team is playing. But I think too much of the time, and this might sound a strange thing to say, the closer you move to correlative data, the further you move from causative data, right? Which might sound nuts, mm-hmm. but if you say, okay, why is a team winning? Well, if you want to find the closest correlation, having a higher score than the opposition is very correlated, right? But that's yeah. not causative. Or putting the ball down over the line, the white line more often than the opposition is very correlated to success. Mm. But that's not causative. And then you go back to that and you say, okay, what about line breaks? Well, line breaks is very correlated, but it's not causative. You've got to keep coming back to the why are each of these things taking place? And is that the bigger picture? Yeah, each team's going to do something different. The Crusaders win in a different way to how the Bulls win, to how the Wallabies win. And so the fact that they're doing it in a certain way, you, you need to understand how you're going to play, but that doesn't really come back to, to what is going to help you to win. So if you say, well, we're going to kick as much as the Bulls kick, Bulls win because they're winning the comp right now, it doesn't work like that. You can go and do that and still come last. We found one year that the team that offloaded the, uh, offloaded the most, which was generally seen as a positive, actually came last in the comp by a long way, which at the time was the, was the Lions. So what I'm really focused on understanding with our work is more about why do clubs win successfully? Why are the Crusaders so successful? Why, why do some clubs struggle? Why do some clubs struggle to produce talent? And then also coaches. Why do some coaches seem to be very successful and then not so successful at other clubs? Why do they you know, bounce around and what's actually causing success or failure? And then how can you separate those out? Yeah, yeah, and... and- as a coach, when you were coaching, would you bring the data analytics to sort of, I guess, prove the role that you were doing, in a sense, to well, the, when you the, present the, to boards? Or The problem with coaches is most of the time if they're presenting the boards, they're trying to defend themselves. I've been yeah. part of scenarios as a data analyst where the coach was like, you just kind of paint this like I'm doing pretty well. You know, <laughs> we, have a, we have a thing called a game line curse, which is if a coach comes to us and asks us to present to his board, he's got a month till he's fired. Like it's happened eight yeah, or nine times. It's like you're done, buddy. Yeah, yep. so we try not to take that sort of angle. We'll help if we can. But most of the time, the board's already made up their mind about that person mm. anyway. Um, yep. There's some markers that we've actually been looking at around coaches that said, okay, well, if, you, if your team is under these markers, not in terms of score, but in terms of cohesion, there's fundamentally nothing you can do to stop the, co- to stop the board firing you. You're, 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 the, the team you have built or the team you have due to injuries or construction is so bad that nothing's basically going to stop you. No matter you are as a coach, nothing's really going to stop you losing your job. So that's not necessarily a, a, a positive. Now, when I was a coach, one of the things that's quite dangerous in data is what's called the Goodhart's Law. I don't know if you've heard of Goodhart's Law, but what Goodhart's no. Law will do is you set a KPI and the KPI starts to deviate the behavior from the whole. 
Okay. So what I mean by that is, let's say I'm a on-out coach of a team. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if the overall goal is to win games, but I'm set the KPI of winning lineouts. Now, in lineouts in rugby, the easiest place to win the ball is at the front. So if I'm more worried about the, hitting my KPI or the team winning, I'll just throw the ball to the front. Now, that is completely counterproductive to the team. The yeah, ball to yeah, the front. Yeah. Okay. But I've seen it happen where a coach will basically direct the players to do a certain aspect, which will make sure he hits his target, but will be to the detriment of the whole. Right? Yeah. So in Victoria, one thing that happened with the police was the police set a KPI by the government of hitting 1.5 million breath tests every year. Right? Now, the problem is they're a completely unachievable marker. So what they mm. would do is go and do the breath tests, and then when they finish, it round as police and do 1,000 breath tests together. But it would be them blowing <laughs> in the breath. Yeah. The overall goal of police is to protect and serve. You're not doing that whilst you're sitting around in a circle. And even the leaders were doing it. They figured out they yeah. falsified about 300,000 breath tests. So that's, uh-huh. where you, that's where KPIs can be quite dangerous yeah. and start to, to shift the behaviour that doesn't necessarily help the whole. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in terms of, like, something that I've been aware of from your work, the teamwork index and getting a successful teams, building that cohesion, which is a bit of a buzzword probably for a long time, yeah. that connection, cohesion. Yeah, is that something when you're working with a developing team or, or maybe it's a clean slate when you're, you're in that position where you're setting a club up, where do you start? Is it, is it getting guys that have come from the same academy to come to the club first? Is, it, is, does, is, there, te- is there index with coaching staff as well when you're setting up a club? Uh, yeah, certainly if, if players have played under a certain coach, then they'll understand the system and, and they won't necessarily have to make as much adjustment. But there's a number of a club. If you look at, for example, how the is they took a bunch of guys together at, an, at other clubs and brought them in so they had boil wins. And then they were very stable and they adjusted and off they went and they actually managed to win the comp inside of two years. If you want to be successful straight away, taking people from somewhere else together is quite helpful. So it gets yeah. you off the mark. Anytime you start a professional team, you really should start it on top of either a professional competition or a well-structured competition. I think that they had difficulties with the Melbourne Rebels is the local competition is not producing professional players. So then they have to continuously import them much more than they have to use what they have locally. And so it's, and then you see it with AFL, when the AFL, when the VFL ceased to exist in 2000, the next six comps were won by interstate teams because we know that was having a yeah, really wow. positive impact. And the two teams that didn't change them and Hawthorne had a lot more control over Box Hill. And so they ran Box Hill basically as Hawthorne A, so to speak, or Hawthorne Academy team. Whereas if you've got a reserve team, you want it to be playing the same way as that team. There's a whole bunch of... Like there's, there's 30 or 40 different components to what's going to help. But funny, if you build a club with a bunch of players with large amount of experience from all around the league, you couldn't be starting off the club in a worse way because what you've yeah. now got is a bunch of old guys. And if you look at the, the Brisbane Lions, Brisbane Bears from, say, 87 to 95, if you look at the way in which the, the swan, early Swans were built, it was even if it was not discards... They were, and there's some of them, some of the players were reasonably strong. Throwing together older players, the, the, the gold cottons were sort of reasonably similar. But the biggest question is where does it all get you? So if you, if you mm. start with a bunch of old players and then they're together for two or three years, you might win a couple of games, but then you've got to completely reload again. But the, the difficulty is when you're starting the AFL is the AFL is the most stable league on the planet. So to bring an expansion yeah. franchise from the AFL is so hard because the damn thing's built so well and takes so long. If you look at GWS... And, and the Gold Coast is they have really struggled with it. But the 
one of the biggest keys, certainly know when, when um, I've had conversations with Brisbane, is they found if they, if they got kids out of Melbourne, they'd always end up going back. The country yeah. boys in, the country boy, a chance of staying. So given that scenario, you really have to work on getting the competition underneath your competition so much better because otherwise you're just importing. When you import, they return. When they're returning all the time, it's unstable. If it's unstable, successful, and it's hard to attract, it's hard to be successful over the long term. Really, sustainable success starts at the grassroots and gets worked and works through. So it's, it is a very, yeah. very difficult job. And the better the league, the harder it is. That makes a lot of sense. And that sort of ties into what you're saying before. In So if you do have your development academy teams, but if the coach in the academy team has KPI of winning the most games, they might be playing a different style to have a So how do you, you might have the things in place, but then how do you have a KPIs that suggest that it's, it is development for the future, that those team, those reserve teams are... 100%. His job, his job should be to provide players for the team above. Yeah. And, and his job description should be about that. And so one thing is when you start to deviate that goal, is he might play guys in the positions that he thinks are going to be effective. Whereas mm. if they say, well, hang on a sec, we, we don't have any young full forwards coming through, so you're going to make one. And if you're going to make one, you're going to have a kid playing out of position. If playing out of position mm. is going to be terrible. So you're going to cop, you have to swallow some pain. And so what coaches would say to me is like, they told me to do this and I did it and then we lost and then they got embarrassed and they fired me. They, they make up their mind about what they want and then also what they're willing to absorb. And you know, the first question I ask to people when I go and talk to boards, why are you on the board? Why are you here? Why are you here because you want to be able to tell your mates that you're, that you're on a board? Do you want to be there mm. in the grand, you want to be there in the grand final? Do you want to be there holding the trophy at the end? Are you prepared to sit and watch your team lose by 100? Are you prepared to cop flack from your fans? And, the, and are you prepared to do things? Are you, would you be prepared to pay the price now for four years for success that comes when you're not even here anymore? Yeah. And yeah. You want people who are on the board because they love the club and they want the club to be successful in matter, and that isn't necessarily always the case. Yeah, and I imagine that needs to be the case across all levels. Yeah, the bigger the club, the more the Ford, pressure for the fans. And, and I think that Richmond had probably one of the best examples of a club that did what we would call cycling, which is going round and round in the circle of we don't have any good players, therefore we need to buy new players. And then mm. when those players turn up, they don't play very well, which then stifles the development of the younger players, which means they have to import more players. So, just go, so they did that for 33 years, right? But they finally, in sort of that you know, 10 to 15, started to get their stuff together. But even in 15, some people still tried to overthrow the board. It was Sorry, 17, they still yeah. tried to overthrow the board because the success wasn't coming at the speed they wanted. And yet they still, and they didn't do that and they won the comp. You know, imagine a universe where they did overthrow the board and they did win. The, imagine if they then won the comp the year they overthrew the board. Like, how would that look? But they've, they've stuck strong. The same thing happened in, I think, 07. They almost fired Bomber Tom before they won three of the next five titles. And so what I find with coaching is that, is that it's quite a rare scenario where you have people unable to judge somebody's task. So you have your boards mm. theoretically judging the ability of the coach to be successful when they really fundamentally have no notion of what success looks like or whether they're actually good at their job. And we'll find with boards that generally sit back while they're winning and they don't, they'll say, oh, just go talk to them, go talk to the coaches, and we'll say, what are you judging the coach? If he loses by 50 yeah. this weekend, is that appropriate or not? And I think we certainly found that with, we were, there's a great podcast called Sacked, and we basically went through each coach that was sacked from his job and found most of the time that coach was winning this, the same or more games than he should have. Is it boards having objective data? What do you think, how can this be done more successfully rather than it being yeah, sort of reacting to emotions, I guess, or however it's been done in the past? What's, what's the way forward? My, my experience of it, there's a, there's a great term actually in economics, which is called attribution bias. Yep. Okay, and attribution bias is saying, 
that when somebody is performing in a certain way, we tend to contribute that to the individual rather than to the mass, okay? When somebody is playing very well for their team, they'll say, well, what a genius. He's the greatest player we've ever seen. So if you look at, for example, the rugby league this year, Nathan Cleary played very, very well for Penrith. People saying he's the young, some of the greatest young players in the history of the game. Yeah. Could have won the, 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 what do you call it, the Dallium. And then he plays for New South Wales like it's breakfast. Everyone's saying, well, maybe he's too young, maybe he's not experienced enough, maybe it's a hangover or whatever. But actually, both of those things were very predictable. The Panthers are the number one, sorry, number two cohesion team in the comp. They came second. With New South Wales, they had a spine that had basically never played together. They had people playing out of position all over the shop. And so, therefore, it's very hard for him to direct play in the same way as he did at Penrith, where he played with most of that spine since he was 13 years of age. Yeah, well, so he's yeah. neither... He's neither He's neither of the two. He's neither a genius, nor is he extraordinarily terrible. But what needs to be understood is the context. Mm. So when they're playing well, what is the context? When they're playing badly, what is the context? And so the thing, the other thing that we find is, is you don't have to change a team by a lot to change it dramatically. You, a rugby league team, you only have to make three changes to the team to change it by half in the way that we look at the team. Yes. Now, that may sound completely nuts because two or three is only 27%, but we actually find it more like 60 or 70%. You change, change one, you know, three or four players and, it's, and it changes everything dramatically because of the way that math- mathematics of relationships works. Yeah. And so it's really a case of that understanding when that change has taken place and whether it's made you better or made you worse and then understanding the context of the individual when they do very well. And a really simple thing, if I could give you an example, we see it in rugby in Sydney the, the rugby system is dominated by private schools. And at the end of each year, they have a representational game where you know a, a couple of the private schools will form a team. And one's called the GPS team and one's called the CAS. And they'll have another one, which is called combined high schools. So the GPS comes from nine schools. The CAS comes from six. And the CHS comes from, let's say, 300 schools. Yeah. Who do you think wins more regularly? Is the CAS overperforms, GPS performs very well, and CHS generally get annihilated. Mm. Now... You're throwing those boys together, and generally they have large scores put on them, but that doesn't mean they're bad players. But a lot of those guys then say, well, I'm never going to make it because I'm not a good player, without understanding the context yeah, yeah. of that scenario, yeah, yeah. which is that CAS is overperforming, and then a lot of those guys get picked for the state, and then a lot of the CHS boys sort of never play any further than that, and it's a real shame. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at a player, you need to look at the context. Is he playing the position he's always played? Is he playing with the people he's always played with? What is he up against? Have they all played together? There's a whole range of different scenarios. Interestingly, we found if you want to really ruin the performance of an individual team, change their jersey. That completely stuffs them, particularly if it's not the jersey they're used to. I think we found that the attack performance of a team in rugby union, rugby league, drops by 30 to 35% when you change their jersey. But what basically what happens is, and I asked a bunch of players, and they said, well, you go to pass to your teammate. Uh- because you're just looking for a colour, right? Yeah. So you so you oh, that's not the right colour. So in the Sydney Confident, for example, this year, the Gordon Club won every single game they had all year, except when they played in a completely different jersey and they lost like twenty two nil. Yeah. Like it just they were just a completely different side. And and but interestingly, the, the defence is not affected by it at all. So the average league and union game is twenty one nineteen to the home mm. team. And the outcome when you change the jersey is like thirteen nineteen on average. Mm. Because you just you, you're very poor at attack, but you continue to do well. Because when you're defending, you defend together, looking at the opposition. When you attack, you need to connect with the teammates. So it's just a it's a tiny little thing, but it's amazing how there's a a lot of stuff in sport that people will say this is what made the difference. Yeah, they have a culture. Or there was a there's a great example of this in in rugby. Is in, in two, 1999, the French rugby team beat the All Blacks, and two nights before it, they were out drinking together. Okay, now 
when teams, because they won, they said that was a stroke of genius and it brought them together as a group. Yeah. And therefore the drinking was the reason they won. If they'd lost, they did the same thing with the Broncos a couple of years. When the Broncos lost, they said, well, they were drinking together yeah. else before they weren't taking it seriously. Yeah. People will, will take anything that they can and make it the reason they want to. And what we're trying to do is to provide some objective data around what makes a difference. Like you know, if we take if we take S and C for example, how much of a difference does taking a team to altitude make in preseason in the AFL? Not a lot. Right. And and I mean I've heard different versions of it, but one of the versions I heard was it's almost entirely anecdotal. Yeah. And it also makes people placebo. Yeah. And if you look at if you know I had some great chats actually with um, Jimmy from Geelong. His name's completely. You can probably help me with this one. The player who had the beard for a very long time from Geelong Football Club. Anyway, player. Uh, Bartel. Oh, Bartel, yeah. He was saying that, that if you compare the facilities of the Geelong Cats in the 2000s to everyone else, they were easily the worst in the comp, easily, in terms of the facilities. So then what actually are the drivers that are making them successful? I'm not saying don't have ice bars, mm. but, like, for example, what does cryo chambers get you over ice bars? Mm. Or what does the million-dollar pool get you over the beach? Or what does the weight, the weights that have the logo of the club on them get you as opposed to the other normal 20 kilo weight? Where are the real, where do the real differences come? And interestingly, when we look at our data, what we basically will find is that the, 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 the variation that comes when you're getting people to do things with people they don't know or doing with jerseys they don't know or with, or in a position they don't know is much greater than the skill differential between players. Skill differential is very marginal. Mm. But you throw people off, we get them to do things that are new, and, and the outcome v- dr- dramatically varies. Mm. And so what you want to do is to try to remove a lot of that change as much as you can on a continuous basis. So I guess the, the, the challenge is, especially when it's so competitive at this highest level, when you've got a better winger, let's say, out there, and you want to top up your wing talent on your list, how do you then, and knowing that that's going to pull down a little bit of your teamwork index in the acute future, how do you sort of weigh up those decisions? Is there objective data that can help you sort of get an idea of, okay, well, we're, we're in that area. Uh, we can. That's a position that we can afford to bring some new talent in to our squad. Uh, is it position specific? Is it team? It is, it is definitely position specific. So, for example, wingers will change clubs much more easily. Okay, but the thing that the thing that we find that clubs tend to do is what wins titles. Defense wins titles most of the time. The team that has the best defensive record generally wins the comp, mm. not the team that has the best attacking mm. record. But you talk to any board member, you talk to any fan, they'll be like, "We want the guy who's going to score lots of goals. Yeah, yeah. We want the guy who's going to score lots the of fancy goals. stuff." But it's when they're working at the other, yeah, we're, we're, it's when they're working at the other end. It's the most. So it's really about understanding the collective versus the individual, and then how much individual difference are we going to get versus are we going to get with that person? But the key also to understand it is that how a person plays for one club is not how they're going to play for yeah. you. They may, um, someone called, someone said to me, they call that the Des Headland oh, yeah. accountant. Yeah, and there's in football they call it the the Bayern Munich mirage. So if you play, a guy from a great club plays very well at one, he's going to play. He won't necessarily play well at another. Yeah. If he goes, if a guy goes from a high cohesion club to a low cohesion club, that's the worst type of trade you can yeah. make because he looks amazing. But if it goes the other way around, they'll look better. Yeah. If they go from high to high, it's minimal. But if you do, if, if you make one trade, that's the problem. It's when you're continuously doing it on mass that creates more chaos. It makes it much harder to then bring players in uh, later. But one of the biggest things we find is the more stable the club, the easier it is to develop youth. Mm-hmm. So when you are constantly buying and topping up at the top, it tends to cause the the to make it harder for the young guys to come through to be successful. Yeah, it makes sense. So you, it's like it's like a family. You have to be stable for the kids to do well. Yeah, move house every yeah m- move house every month and 
see what it's like for your kids. See how they, see how school goes for. Yeah, them. yeah. That's yeah, not necessarily thought about. Okay. Yeah, and did we go into the attribution bias, or did we get cut out at that period? No, no, we did. So attribution bias. I, I well, I, I, I talked about it. I don't know if we were on air at the time, but basically, it was it was saying that attribution bias is the component of of teams where if if a player is playing extremely well, right, yeah. we believe it's them, yeah. not the situation, yeah, yeah. and then vice versa. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, we definitely touched on that. And in terms of key areas for development, because I know there's something that you, you worked in as well, are there, are there trends that you've seen now in successful teams that you think are really important when working with developing teams or athletes? What I would say for a young athlete is don't make a decision based on money. Make a decision based on, on, on a club that has a history of developing people yep. and a club that has a history of patience. And although this might sound sort of counter, when I, when I made the Wallabies, I was on the bench for a long time, but what that actually gave me is a lot of faith that if I went in and I didn't perform straight away, they would also take their time yeah, that's true. with me. Yeah. Now, with clubs that are development clubs, development clubs will, it's not about how much you earn at the start. Let's take rugby league, for example. If you go to a club like the Melbourne Storm and you stick at it, there's a very, very strong chance you're going to play for Queensland or New South Wales instead of Origin. Mm. There's a very strong chance you're going to play for Australia but you're going to be part of one of the highest cohesion teams of all time. And so what can tend to happen for a young player is they start to then get caught up in how good am I, how well am I doing, without necessarily themselves understanding that context. And so then an offer will come along to double the amount of money to go to another club. Yeah. And they'll take that deal and their career is never going to be the same again. Mm. It's very, very difficult. And they start questioning why, you know, did that happen? So what I would say is, is one, go to the type of club that's going to develop you as much as you can first. Secondly, stay there as long as you can. And even if you have to stay on the bench or play part of reserve grade, and you'll have mates that are at bad playing first grade, so yeah. when's my time going to come? Yeah. But in the, with the goodness of the time, the right club is the right, is the right thing to do. And you can see, I, I think it's quite hard in the AFL because you can see why they're trying to disperse talent with the you know, first-round draft picks, for example. Mm. But what it also means is that a lot of the time that – those first-round draft picks are actually going to uncohesive clubs and that those players will struggle to, to, to work their way through that scenario, particularly when they're being a first-round draft pick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what about with developing teams? Is, it, is the first step getting that reserve, team, reserve side or academy? Is that probably the most important? Oh, man, like it, it, it all depends on where you're at. We've had a club that had 10 rounds not go down, you know, that basically was going to get relegated. Yeah. And so the job was then about to kind of save them from relegation. So that's a completely different scenario yeah. than if you're starting a club. Yeah. So it's, it's really about what is the next, what do we have permission, when do we want to perform, what do we have permission to do from the fans' perspective, how are we going to build this over time. We'll, we'll talk to people and, and clubs or coaches will say to us, I understand what you're saying, but I don't have permission to build a dentist. Mm. I've been told if I don't make the eight this year, I'm done. Yeah. Well, that's a whole different kettle of fish. About making the eight, then we need to have a very different conversation. Yeah. So it all depends on what the club wants to do and how to help them do it. And for example, I'm, I've been working with somebody that has a, a national team and it's like, okay, well, we've, we have three years to get a team ready for a World Cup. Yeah. How are we going to do What's What do we need to do in order to do that? They have a period of time they have to win a title and then you can make different decisions. But if, for example, you've got one season yeah. or, you've got, or, or you, you take on a team where they've got a World Cup, you have to hope you don't get injuries. You have to hope that you can keep a team together and, and be that, that things have to go your way. 
So if you look at, for example, Cronulla in the 2016 season, the only way they're ever going to win the comp was to play the same team less than everyone else, um, with less changes than everybody else, yep. which is what... Whereas with the Storm, the Storm can do it 10 different ways and still win the comp because they've got so much cohesion in the bank between so many of the guys. Yeah, right. So, so it all really depends on the situation and how you go about it. But you could probably be more ruthless when you've got a program like that as well, couldn't you, with your, with your program? In terms- 100%. And interestingly, interestingly, it's not about keeping everybody. It's sometimes actually about letting guys go because then you're allowing the next group to come through. It's, not, it's, it's about saying, yeah, Noble is too big for this team. It's a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm really interested to see what happens with the Patriots next. Why is that? Well, because if the system was just about Brady and Brady leave, then it should fall over. Where if it's about Belichick and it's about the system, then... And there's some signs they're improving. They're not going to make the playoffs this year, but let's see what happens next year. Yeah. If you're Tampa Bay and you've signed Brady and you've signed Gronkowski, like, where are they going to be in five years' time? Yeah. yeah. They've got to start a whole thing over again. So none of that actually really gets them anywhere in the long term. It's very, very short-term thinking. Mm. But by releasing Brady and saying, okay, we're going to put it back together again, I'm really interested to see it. So the storm of basically all but one of the big four yeah. gone, and they're still... Yeah. For a club like that, is it two years, three years, or is it is it just a matter of... It's all about the comp you're in. If you're in an unstable comp, you can reload fast. If you're in a highly stable comp, you can reload slow. Depends what the opposition's doing. When, whenever we get questions like that, it's like, Context, context, context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the sport? Basketball takes less time because there's less players than football. Is it a defensive sport? Is it an attacking sport? To give you an example, in ice skating, pairs figure skating has a less cohesive nature than ice dancing. You'd think they'd be the same, right? Mm. There's like a 60% differential between the two because ice dancing is far more interactive between the two. So how long would it take a pair to reload and be successful in ice dancing? No one's ever done it. Yeah. And one a gold medal or a world championship. In pairs figure skating, four years is what it would take. Those two sports are pretty similar. I didn't even know there was a pairs figure skating versus ice dancing. Yeah. But you, but they have a massive differential between the two. So there, it, how long is a piece of string is the answer to that question. Of course, yeah. And I, that makes sense. So as I'm hearing you explain it, it, yeah, it depends on the time within the league as well. Because if everyone else is going through a bit of a rebuild, when you're going through a rebuild, you just timed it perfectly. Essendon 1993 was the best example of that I've ever seen. Right. They were, their markers weren't great, but everyone else's were bad. They just... Capitalised. They had no injuries. They just fell through and won it. it. Everything lined up in terms of the opposition they played. They didn't overperform. They weren't in the comp, but they won the comp. Yeah. And is there any way you, you can have any analysis to that? Or is that just... We've analysed every single game. What they can't do is they can't control the draw. Yeah. They can't control the opposition put against you. You just have to, you know, the better you are, the better you're put together, the more chance you have of lucking out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't pick your team after they pick their team to match up against them. So you just basically have to build a system that's going to work and hope to God you don't get injuries. And that happens. But you want to build a system that is that, that is going to be the most lucky, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And for, I guess that was only ever going to happen you know, one way, whereas like with uh, with Brisbane, when they're at their height, it could have happened 50 different ways. Yeah, yeah. That team was going to win by default. Other teams, they're going to win only all of the wheels of the holes in the cheese line up in the right yeah. way. Yeah. And so it, it does occur, but you just have to hope for the best. Fantastic. Well, that makes sense, mate. Well, we'll wrap it up before we're, we're cut out again, uh, which it looks like it probably has now. But thanks heaps for your time, Ben. And uh, thanks for everyone that joined us. Thanks, Ben. 